Good morning. So my name is Haya Dawn. I'm the president and CEO of Osino Resources Corp. I'm also the founder of the company. I'm a Namibian by birth. I'm a mining engineer. Been around the block last 10 years. I was an entrepreneur building companies and advancing companies. And that's what I'm doing here. Good to see you. It's been a while. August 2020. <laughs> I thought it was something I said. Uh, welcome back. Are you well? Yes, I'm well, thank you. Um, it has been a while, but as you've seen, uh, a lot has happened. It, it, it has. And we're going to go over a little bit of old ground because I think it has, has been a while. I, I like this through when I last heard it. And I think my, my recollection was it's, uh, it was setting itself up for success, but there's still a lot to do. So let's, let's find out what's happened. So remind people um, about your projects in Namibia. What have you got? Yeah, so uh, very quickly, um, we became known because we sold a gold project to B2Gold 10 years ago, which B2Gold turned into a real dripping roast um, cash cow. And so Asino was formed to basically do that again. Obviously, that's a bit flippant to say that. So now um, we have a PFS stage gold project, 3 million ounce resource. Um, we discovered it ourselves and we have spent the last two or three years defining that resource and then transitioning out of the exploration into the development space. Uh, we're now a pre-construction advanced developer um, and obviously uh, still a lot of execution to be done. But um, I think what sets us apart is the, the fast-tracked approach. I, I, I take credit for one of the fastest discovery to uh, feasibility stories of sort of recent memory, um, and hopefully we can maintain that momentum. That's more or less it. Right, so you've, you've got a couple of projects, though, have you not? Um, yes. What stage is the other one at? What have you done with that? So we have the full sort of Rand Gold triangle of uh, assets. So um, the most advanced one and the most important one is Twin Hills. That's a three million ounce uh, resource with a prefix. The next one is one that we acquired from B2Gold, which is um, currently, um, well, there's no 43.1 out. There's no 43.101 report out on it, but we acquired it with 40,000 meters of drilling that B2Gold had done. Um, and we plan to put out that resource um, at the end of this month. That will be a significant addition. Obviously, I can't tell you the number, even though I know it. It's going to be a very material addition to our resource inventory. Um, so that's a secondary project, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but it has an opportunity to be to be co-developed with Twin Hills. Mine and their processes it here. Even, um, so, um, and then we have a bunch of we have a bunch of other product, uh, projects, earlier stage exploration projects that we're active on, basically trying to do trying to make additional discoveries, and we are active on them, and we do have, we do have some very interesting sniffs. Okay, I think you gave, you gave a sort of heads up to me back in August 2020 about the potential for Undundu, uh, um, but it hadn't actually happened yet, so that, that, that's interesting. Um, can we come back to something you just said? You know, you're proud of the kind of the accelerated timeframe from just discovery through to, uh, you know, feasibility uh, study. Which is great. Um, I'm just wondering how you feel about that in, in the kind of current environment, because I think you put out recently the pre-feasibility study. I think you described it in other interviews as a very honest um, study. Um, you know, and of course, I'm referring to, you know, the economic damage that has been done with um, with COVID and, and, and printing money and supply chain, etc. Costs have gone up. Um, CapEx budgets have been blown out of the water. Um, were you nervous about putting a study out at this moment in time? Because some people have deferred doing that. Yeah, no, we, we had to. You know, I, I'm a man of my word. And we, I think we've, made, we've built a reputation as doers, 
that that we we deliver what we promise. And I told the market we would put it out, so we will put it out. Um, you asked me beforehand at the beginning about continuing to fast track. So my view on that is changing because, you know, for us, we kept delivering. We've done everything perfectly right and the share price has just gone nowhere. So clearly the market does not care and fast tracking and doing the right thing does not get rewarded. And that's why right now we are actually going into hibernation mode. We've stopped all rigs. Um, most of the heavy lifting has been done. We can do, we can generate a lot of news flow still without spending lots of extra money. Um, but yeah, certainly the study is out. We will, we will continue to de-risk like permitting and a few others. But, but other than that, the fast tracking only works if someone is actually paying attention. That's really interesting and, again, and really honest um, of, of you. So are you nervous that the market will react negatively to that? I mean, why should they react positively to that other than we're, we're not going to spend as much money? No, I don't think they will react at all, as we have seen with the pre-feasibility announcement, because there's no audience. You know, the money is sitting in GIC accounts where it earns 4.5%. The retail audience is diminished. Um, there are few... We, we have not a few. In fact, we have many, many long-standing supporters. I'm very pleased by that, and I acknowledge them here. They, we've got a great fan base, and I really say thank you to all you guys. Um, that includes my family. We've got lots of investors in Namibia. It includes Ross Beatty. Ross Beatty is there because he's a fan of me. So those guys are there. They will support us, um, but they can't move the share price unless they climb in in a big way. And that's why I don't think we'll get hurt. I think it's just uh, it's the right thing to do now is to slow down and, and, and retain our sort of flexibility. Okay, well, let's look at that in the context of someone's been offloading shares for about the past two months. Um, are those things correlated or is that, or not? It's a macro move. So clearly, as we saw around the middle of the year, there was an expectation that any, people have been hoping that interest rates will roll over. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you a big economic lecture. I'm not an economist. But um, clearly, a large part of the market, the mining funds, many, many have taken the view that gold price will continue to be weak or get weaker in the short term next six months or so. Um, and that means you should get out of developers because they're the most capital hungry. Um, and so not just us. Actually, if you look at our new presentation, it's on the website. There's a graph that compares our share price with a selection of juniors, comparable juniors. And you will see that we've lost our premium rating. We used to outperform everyone else. We've now traded almost exactly in line with companies like Marathon Gold, who are very similar to us. And that tells you that big investor that's been selling, he's been selling us and a couple of other comparable names, but indiscriminately, uh, just wanting to get out, hoping that you'll pick up the shares on the cheap in six months' time through a financing or three months' time through a financing. Is it six or is it three? No, no, no. I'm saying that's what they're thinking, not what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I thought we stumbled across something there. Um, okay, so they're, they're offloading because I think they think um, developers are going to struggle in terms of one raising cash, and obviously the, the, the working towards economic studies is going to reveal that perhaps their costs are, have um, been blown out of the water. Um, were you surprised by the where you ended up with your capex numbers? Well, how, how as a percentage, how much more was it than you were expecting? Yes, I was surprised that it was a bit higher. Um, but, um, we, so I always guided to the sort of 300, $350 range. We ended up at 375. But, um, so I'll justify that partially. The big change 
has been the scope change of the project. You know, we went from a medium-sized project to a large-sized project. There was basically a 50% scope increase from 3.5 million tons per annum to 5.3 million tons per annum nameplate capacity. We've only scheduled 5 million tons per annum. So that's a 50% increase. That takes us from 200 to $300 million. Um, then you've got about $75 million left to explain, so to speak. Um, we added some nice-to-haves that make the project better, like, for example, a $20 million solar plant. We also added a $20 million capitalized pre-strip. That was necessary to get the high production rates in the early years, but it also gives us more... It's a lower-risk approach. If you if you start mining half a year before you process and you build a stockpile, it's just a better way. But, of course, it costs money. So that's there's 40 of 70. And then there were some other additional things, like a bit of extra for grid power, um, a bit of extra, a better estimate. Like, for example, the tailing stem, we now have a, um, you know, $50 million, very expensive facility, double line, dry stack tailings. We had to do that because it has a lower water consumption. And it's also an investment in doing the right thing. So I think that was the combination, combination of how we ended up at 375. If you compare that to other developers and other studies, by the way, there were four feasibility studies that came out this week. So you've got a lot of comps. I'm looking at my notes. It's Skina, Moneta, and O3. Um, so in terms of comps, capital intensity, we're still looking good. Um, we're not exceptional anymore. Prices have moved up. But our study is in a sort of in the eye of the storm study. So as we move forward to the definitive and maybe potential construction in the second half of next year, I do, I do think there's potential to improve that capital number. Right. So that's a kind of paper exercise that you've been through. But you, you, as you just stated, you're going to just rein everything back in terms of cost drilling, nothing happening on the ground. You're going to be chasing um, permits and, 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 and so what else was there? So two permits are key, the mining license and the environmental authorization. Those are, um, those, those are, will happen in the next few months. Then project financing. Um, but before, let's talk about that afterwards. And the third one is doing, executing a definitive. We, we will do the definitive because it's a key input into project financing. And I think for a, an advanced stage developer like ours, the key uncertainty is how are we going to finance it? Where's the equity going to come from? Um, so giving clarity on the capital stack that will allow the construction of the project is key. And we we already deep into, into that process. Maybe I'll just expand on that. So we've appointed a debt advisor. Uh, we actually had a site visit from lenders in June when you were in Namibia. We had lenders in Namibia. We had about 12 lenders there. These are the kind of companies like credit funds, senior debt providers, and some. And there was one multilateral there. They had very strong appetite, and um, we just parked them. We had to get this pre-fees out because on the, on the pre-fees numbers, we will now seek term sheets. Um, so I think that by the end of this year, we will have term sheets from a group of uh, senior debt providers, royalty companies, lenders, alternative providers. We'll then, we'll then put the puzzle together. We'll, we'll select a short list of those, and hopefully together with the definitive Maybe by the end of the first quarter next year, we should be able to announce a, a financing package. The drawdown of that, of course, we can control. We don't immediately have to take the money and, and, and start building. But giving clarity to the market that this company can raise the money without blowing out the, the, the share structure through dilution is one of the key steps that we're going to focus on over the next six months. It is. Okay, so you're starting the process of getting indicative term sheets back. Um... Fine, but the defendant, and you're kind of skipping a stage, you're going straight from pre-fees to defendants. So 
Because, because why? There's no, no, we're not skipping a step. We're just doing it quickly. Um, basically, what step are you referring to? It's well, sorry, I think you've, you've, you've just put, you've just put a, a, a pre-fees um, study, pre-fees. right? And you're going yes. straight to definitive. Yes, but that's normal. That's, uh, it's just that most other companies, it takes them, well, no, let me rephrase. There's no other study between a pre-fees and a definitive, just to clarify. But many companies take some time before they do this and they grow the project some more or so. We, we, you are right that we're going straight into a definitive because basically with a 5 million ton per annum processing plant layout, we've, we've, de- we've defined the scope of this project. It's not going to grow substantially beyond that in terms of throughput because otherwise you have a step change up in capital because you have to go for two streams, etc. There are technical reasons why we've kind of maximized. It's the appropriate size for the size of the resource. So therefore, the definitive is just improving on the estimate um, and improving on some of the residual uncertainties like Metest work and a few others. Okay, we, we did get a few companies coming on talking about going from pre-fees to feasibility and then on to DFS. But is this because it's a kind of low-grade bulk project? Is it a little bit simpler that you can do that? Uh, no, I think, sorry, I don't, uh, don't, don't mean to split hair here, but a definitive, the difference between a pre-fees and a definitive is just a better estimate. A pre-fees is based on, largely on factoring of other project. A definitive is based on actual quotes. So you have a better quality estimate with a lower contingency. Remember, in our pre-fees, for example, I should have mentioned that earlier, um, we've got a 15% contingency, $40 million. So in a definitive, you look to reduce that. The other big one is you, you use the pre-fees to do trade-off analyses um, so that you can settle on the final layout. We've done that. And then the third aspect is you do the, in a, in a definitive, you do the expensive metallurgical variability analysis, meaning rather than work with a composite, you do the same suite of MET test work on every individual sample throughout that deposit. That we've done. We've been very proactive. And that's why we can go from a pre-fees to a definitive in six months because people have been skeptical about saying, how can you do that? So that fast tracking will still happen. What happens thereafter, and maybe that's what you're referring to, is there's a process called feed front-end engineering and design. That's where you convert That's where you convert your definitive, the study, the concept, into actual drawings. Um, that takes three to six months, and that allows you to order the long lead items. At the end of that, you then go into construction. Now, the reason I emphasize this point, and I'll stop shortly, if, if this is what the juniors do. If you were Anglo-American or Rio Tinto, you would do, you would do feed and definitive in one go. So they do it much more comprehensively. They don't break it into phases, um, and and then they build afterwards. But obviously, do, breaking it into phases for a junior requires a bit less capital, and you can do it in steps. Sorry, I'll be late at that point. That's fine. That's fine. And I'm not going to split hairs with, with, you, with you over how different companies frame it, um, because you're doing the work which gets the, the, the feasibility, definitive feasibility studies lined up. So it, it is what it is. And, and the feed component, it's, it's a ways off. So let's talk about that when, when that comes. Um, I do want to talk to you about um, water and environmental, because we're seeing some environmental issues happening all around the world, North America, South America. You know, in, in Africa, it's, it's off the back of the big narrative around ESG last year. It became, you know, quite a, quite a talking point. Um, in Namibia, um, we drove up there in, in, in May, drove thousands of miles uh, in in May, um, and we saw a number of desalination plants um, supplying water inland to you know, some of the uranium uh, companies based there. Um, Water for you, is is that an issue? Is it something that you need to resolve, not just in terms of permitting, but in terms of f- physical outlay to actually get the water to site? 
Yes, you've hit on it. Water and power are the two, are, are two key risks or uncertainties. We do have answers for it. And, um, but before I provide you the answers, the context that you painted is correct. Namibia does have water in, in the interior and on the coast through desalination, but it's in the wrong places for us. Um, and so at the same time, also the other problem in Namibia is that the, the utilities, whilst they're very professional, uh, they deliver, but they take a long time. So their timelines are much longer than ours. So we cannot rely on the utilities only. So what we've done, therefore, on water is we relied initially on groundwater. On our smaller project, we had sufficient groundwater. We've done, we've drilled 50 holes. We've done all the studies. So we've determined what the sustainable yield is. And with what we've done so far, that would supply about 60% of our water requirement. Um, we've also added, and this is in the CapEx, we've added a very nice recycling project where we will use grey water from the local town, um, which will add another 15%. And the residual 25% we've made an application for to connect into the national grid. Not desalination, it's coming from the other side, from Vintuk. Um, we haven't got an answer for that yet. That's why I still call this a risk, but we got a letter recently stating that they will come back to us very soon. So we expect that we will get that water. So therefore, I do think for water, there's an engineering solution. For power, it's a very similar situation where the power is there, but they have to build a large substation close to the town of Karabib. And um, it takes them, usually takes them a long time. And that's why for them to take us serious, we have to make a down payment of about a million dollars, which we intend to do in the next few months. And then we will finesse this with them. What often happens in Namibia is that mines build the infrastructure themselves and then hand it over to the utility and then get reimbursed or, or pay a lower price or whatever. BT Gold did that. We intend to do the same with the power. But until that's, until that's fully negotiated and contractually reflected, I still have to call it a risk. But I, I do think that we have a solution to it. Yeah, no, I think I drove through a, sub, um, a substation uh, on my way to, I think, Bannerman or Deep Yellow's um, site. So it, th these aren't massive things, and I, I presumably not massive capital outlays either. Um, but I say, there's not timing's not in your in your hands there. Um, okay, understood where you're where you're coming from. Um, could I ask though, given your your sort of slight change in attitude here, and given your track record, you know, with the sale uh, to BT, um, do you are you just setting this up for someone to kind of walk in and, and take this over, or do you feel you need to get it past the DFS stage to kind of capture the most value, or are you doing the DFS to say, well, actually, we can get this into production. We're best suited to do that. Yeah, it's obviously a very good question, um, and I do have an answer for it. You, and the answer is fully rooted in, and you'll understand this as a banker, it's rooted in price per NAV, in, in valuation. What is the best way to get value? And that's my key job for shareholders is to create value. Um, now, so at the moment we rated at, call it 0.15 price per NAV based on 1700 gold in this PFS. That's obviously a ridiculously low valuation. Um, our peers, which are quite comparable marathon or whoever they are, are trading at about 0.35, so more than a double. And even that's historic, by historical standards, that's low. Historically, they should be trading at 0.6. But let's say in the context of the current market, we're trading at probably a third or half of where we should. So that brings me back to your question of M&A. M&A, everybody has been talking about it for the last two years, but it hasn't happened. We haven't seen that many deals, and the deals that have been there have been low premium deals. Now, as a shareholder, would you want me to accept a low premium deal? Like, would you, if I did a 50%er, that's a dollar per share. This project is far too good to do that. So therefore, I don't want to do that. 
And that's why we have to continue to execute. And the only way that we can control through or, or to achieve a better rating is through ongoing execution. And that's why, for example, de-risking, permits, project financing, definitive study, that's within our control. It doesn't cost a lot. Most of the heavy lifting has been done. That's what we will focus on. And that will eventually um, get reflected in the valuation. Obviously, the current share price is complete mispricing. It's because the funds have thrown the baby out with the bathwater, but that will correct itself. Hope that answers your question. So just to add to it, so I do think that M&A for a single asset developer, of course, getting that full re-rating takes longer. So I do think fundamentally speaking, M&A finding, going into the belly of somebody bigger and then re-rating together is a better way, but only if you get an appropriate valuation. Hope that answers right. that. Right. It, it does. And look, and I think a lot of companies in the same um, position, we've got management teams hoping that um, even if there was an uh, unsolicited offer that the shareholders would reject it because valuations at the moment are slightly out of whack. That said, um, great bargain for people to buy cheap shares, isn't it? Of course. Um, right, so, so will management be buying cheap shares? <laughs> um, yes, we will. So we're actually in the process of figuring out the blackout rules because um, it's very complicated because unfortunately with... Um, yeah, anyway, it's complicated because of audited financials, etc. We have a very short period in the year where we can actually buy. And also because of our fast-tracked approach, we have always had material news in the pipeline. And that's why for the last couple of months or for the last year, we've always had drill results, studies in the in the pipeline, etc. And that's why we couldn't buy. We would love to buy. Um, so I don't want to make empty promises here before we've done it, but I hope that you will see some insider buying very soon. Right. Okay. Okay. Th th yeah. Uh, an often asked question by your shareholders, I think, or certainly people talking about you. Um, okay, so um, I've, I've got, to, got to come back to um, the, the sort of the, talking of shares. Um, you, you've got a seller at the moment. Have they sold everything that they've got? Well, one, do you know who it is? And have they sold everything that they've got? Can we expect to see some sort of relief from that pressure? Yeah, thanks. Um, I can speak. I'll try to be as open as I can. You know, on CEO.ca, you, you might have seen I have engaged with shareholders because I obviously needed to, to give feedback. Um, I have no certainty. I have um, cannot guarantee. So this is all speculative that I'm going to say, or this is triangulation that I did. I believe that that seller is gone, uh, and that's based on conversations with the two key brokers that have done a lot of the volume, that's NIB and Paradigm. Um, I uh, we have not been able to speak directly to the seller um, if it is the one that I'm thinking about, but um, I have good reason to believe that they've through most of that selling. Uh, if, you, if I've done the numbers over the last four weeks, where the volume picked up picked up so substantially, I think we've had about 16 million shares of additional trading, and I think about half of that has been due to one individual seller. So I, I think he's gone, but. You know, you never know. I mean, anecdotally, you can see yesterday we traded 150,000 shares or so. It's quite low. Let's see what happens today. But volumes are down, which indicates that that seller might be gone. Right. Okay. And, and do you think that's entirely down to that seller? Do you think it's down to gold price retrenching somewhat? Do you think it's down to just people still being a little bit risk off? Because I think there have been some green shoots, uh, you know, else, elsewhere in the market suggest that people are looking and taking a little sniff and perhaps picking up, say, some cheap cheap stock at the moment, but what, what, how do you and the board kind of feel about recent, uh, recent events? No, I agree with you. It's not just one seller. There have been more. Uh, other funds have also been selling. 
Um, and it, it has been a, a whole macro shift where people expected that gold prices would run and all of a sudden they realized, oh, Fed is, Fed is going to tighten more. So therefore, let's, let's get the hell out of here. And that, that's been happening. And, but one, one in particular, and unfortunately in our case, a very large one, um, hit us. I mean, there was a month end effect as well. You know, that obviously these guys often like to square their books at the end of the month. So that's why, um, last week we saw a lot of that activity, but yeah. Okay. Are you good for money for, for now? Um, given that you're kind of, you know, stepping back from spending so much money. Um, what, what, what does the current budget allow you to kind of get through to before you need to go back to market? No, we unfortunately we never have enough money, um, and so but but we've been able to squeeze things. So we we actually still have, as of yesterday, we have over seven million dollars in the bank. We had some VAT refunds in Namibia, which is beautiful because what other country in Africa actually refunds your VAT? So that was about two million dollars that we got back. Appreciated a lot. Um, so on the usual bread and butter studies and drilling that would last us a long time, well into next year. But we do have um, some capital items coming up because we expect the purchase of the surface rights to come due because we've been waiting for government approvals and we're expecting a government approval, the final one, to come due soon. Um, can't tell the number here exactly because it's a little bit sensitive, that deal. Um, and we do want to make that down payment for the power line so that we can finesse that, that situation. So um, how do we deal with that? Um, and how do we deal with a potentially worsening equity market? So... Um, again, everything I'm saying about to say is speculative, but we are, we have spoken to a range of alternative financial providers and we are thinking about putting in place a backstop, a facility, something that gives us life insurance so that in the absence of an equity market, we've got, got something to fall back on. Yes, this is a grudge form of financing. It takes time to put these things in place. So we've, we've gone through the motions of due diligence, documentation. We haven't signed on the dotted line. The idea is to do Beaver Creek, Denver Gold this week, heavy marketing. I'm talking every night to all the big funds, um, my night, their day. And, um, at the end of September, we'll, we'll, we'll gather the troops. I mean, Ross Beatty is there. Uh, quite a few of our large shareholders have said they will finance us with equity at any price and they'll just pro rata. Um, but let's see where we are at the end of September and then we'll make a call. Maybe it will be some kind of note and equity or only equity or no equity and only a note. It depends on the share price at the time. But we certainly don't intend to raise finance at 60 cents, that's for sure. Okay, um, fine on that one. And just finally, I better let you sort of um, shine a spotlight on some of the the important numbers from the pre-feasibility study because, you know, the one, the one I look at is uh, after-tax payback period, 2.3 years. That's, that's, that's good stuff for me. But, but do you want to give us some of the other numbers? Yeah, the biggest one was obviously it's an upsize study. So we got to the 200,000 answer a year number um, in the early years. Yes, it tapers off, um, uh, yeah, but we will backfill that with ongoing drilling. So we, we would love to do drilling, but we won't use debt to drill, that's for sure. Um, so we've rebased the company at a much higher level, north of the 150,000 answer a year credibility level. And that, the idea behind that was to get just onto a, the radar screen of a different universe of acquirers, the materials. You know, you need to be 150,000 plus, and we are there firmly now. The costs are, despite inflationary increases, are still quite acceptable. We're sort of in the middle of the cost curve, maybe in the, at the top of the lower half, at the sort of 930 all in sustaining. I think there, that discounts very heavy steel ball prices, diesel prices, expensive reagent prices. I think that will come down. So I think, um, We've put out numbers at, in the middle of the eye of the storm. 
by the time we get to building this project, I think it's going to be even better. So we've got a very credible project, good numbers. Um, but um, I think, let's see in a year's time, I, I expect this project will become very, very successful.